Good morning, everybody. I am going to start things a little bit differently than I normally do. We're just going to go straight to the text today. So if you have your Bibles or your Bible app with you, just go ahead and open it up. Psalm 137 is where we'll be today. And as you're heading over there, I'll just introduce myself. For those of you who may not know, my name is Joey Weber. I'm the associate pastor here at Stonebridge. I mean, the reason we're going to just start with the text today is we're going to let God's word speak first and foremost. And then I just pray that I can explain it well. We do have a a difficult passage today, um, but don't feel bad for me because I chose this one. So out of 150 Psalms and just, you know, 15 weeks or something like that, I chose this one. So Psalm 137, follow along as I read. This is by the waters of Babylon. There we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare, down with its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rocks. Why? Why this psalm? Possibly one of the the worst psalms, if you could say it that way, one of the hardest passages. As I was reading and researching this past week and digging into it, they referred to this psalm as as a hate psalm and as an R-rated psalm and just kind of talking about how horrific it can be just reading it. And I will, I will be the first to admit, I've been accused of it at times, and I've really reflected on it over the past couple of months. I will be honest and say there are times where I do things for shock and awe. Like, I really do. And I don't think I ever intentionally do it. It's just kind of like my nature. And so at first I was just like, am I just reading this one and wanting to do this one for shock and awe? But it's not. I really prayed about it and like, Lord, let it not be that. I I don't want to just shock people with this passage. I wanted to preach this passage because I feel it is vitally important for us all to know that passages like this are in our Bible. See, shortly after I got saved, I started going into a discipleship group with other young men. And while we were in this group, there was this young man with me. He had freshly gotten saved too. And he was so excited for Jesus and what Jesus had done and about reading his Bible and going to church. And so he'd go to work and he'd, he'd talk about that at work. Just go on and on about Jesus and the Bible and how great it was. And one day he comes back to our discipleship group and he's just kind of a little different, a little broken maybe. And we said, you know, what, what's going on? And he goes, well... I was at work last night. He worked at a factory over in, in Story City. He's like, I was working last night. And I told these guys that I work with that I was a Christian and that I was reading my Bible. And the guy that was there with him said, how could you ever read a book with such hate in it? 
How could you ever worship a God that could say things like, it's okay to dash babies on the rocks? And this young man is sitting there with us, and he goes, I know our God wouldn't say something like that. That's not in our Bible. And so my senior pastor at the time said, well, actually it is. Let's go look at it. Let's go read it, and let's talk about it. What does this mean to us? And I wish I could sit here and tell you that that young man is passionately following the Lord. The the truth is, I actually just sat here beforehand like, I wonder if I could find him on Facebook. It's Facebook, right? You can find everyone. I, I couldn't. I have no idea where this young man is at anymore. I know he went through a lot of struggles after that point, not just with God and church, but just personal family issues that he went through. And I don't know where he is, but I know shortly after we discussed this, he slowly started to pull a little bit more further and further away from the church. And I don't know if this passage did it, but that's why I thought it was so important. Matt and I feel that it is vitally important to discuss the difficult passages in the Bible here in church, to wrestle through them as a family. And if I say something today that offends or shocks you, I beg you to come to me and talk to me. And that's not just for this passage and this sermon. That's anything that I've ever said or will say. It is potential that I will eventually shock or offend you. And I speak for Matt and I speak for our elders as well, especially the preaching ones. If any of us say that, come to us. Don't pull away. Come and talk to us about what was said that shocked or offended you. So this psalm is an imprecatory psalm. And Matt, when he preached on Psalm 1, he talked about all the different types of psalms. And he said, you know, and imprecatory psalms. And Joey's going to explain that later, moving on, you know. So here we are. We're there now. So what exactly is an imprecatory psalm? Well, imprecatory psalms are, are prayers designated because of their particularly vigorous attitude towards an enemy. The verb imprecate means to pray against evil or to invoke a curse upon another. These are psalms written to, to pray against people that are putting opposition on them. They are vengeful. They are wrathful. They are sometimes hateful psalms. But in order to truly understand why and what's going on in this, if we just read this psalm and say, that's really harsh, I don't know what to do with it, We will never truly understand it. So we have to understand the context and what's going on at this time in Israel and why this psalmist would say these things. So Israel is in a lot of distress at this point when this psalm is written. This psalm was written after the Babylonian exile. And for many years, the prophets had warned the people, please don't keep doing what you're doing. Turn turn away from these false idols. Turn away from these false practices. Turn back to God. God spoke through the prophets over and over again, warning them, please come back to me, begging them like a child. Come back to where I can love and care for you. And if you don't, we're going to have to punish you. And the people didn't listen. We can find, we can see these warnings in Jeremiah, Isaiah, and other prophetic books. So finally, in 587 BC, just as Jeremiah and others had warned, the Babylonians invaded Judah. They captured Jerusalem. They destroyed most of the city, including the temple, the dwelling place of God. 
And after witnessing the destruction of their city and the center of their worship, the people were then the people that were left living were then forced to walk 900 miles to Babylon, where their captors forced them to settle and turn them into slaves eventually. In the book of Daniel, we can see what the people's lives were like in Babylon. The ones that were left alive and taken to Babylon, they were forced to assimilate or die. To assimilate basically just means to make them more like you. You know, to assimilate someone says, I want to make my child more like me. I want to assimilate him. But with religion and cultures, it's taking away everything that represented the Israelites and trying to make them into Babylonians. They basically had to worship the Babylonian gods, eat the food that was against their religious beliefs and laws, and even changed their names to represent Babylonian gods and took their names away from them. So this psalmist, we don't know who wrote it. It's just a random psalmist that wrote it. He's writing this Psalm 137 after experiencing all of that and living for years in Babylon and now finally coming back to Israel and seeing what's left. He's working through a lot of emotions as he wrote this psalm. And this can be a difficult area for some of us to truly grasp, right? Because most of us have never felt persecution or being ripped away from our homeland and everything that we've loved being destroyed around us. But if we truly want to understand the emotions and why he could write something like this, we must attempt to. We must press into it and attempt to understand the emotions. And so the emotions that are displayed here are kind of our main points for today. First off, in verses 1 through 3, we can see that the psalmist is feeling grief and defiance. He's feeling grief remembering what Jerusalem used to be. This psalmist had most likely been someone who knew what the temple looked like before. Like he had lived in Jerusalem. And he had lived through the exile and now was coming back as an old man. And so he had seen the glory of what it was and now is seeing what is left. We get a picture of what that possibly looked like in Jeremiah and Lamentations. So Jeremiah uh, chapter 39, verses 6 through 9, I have it behind me. This tells the, the actual attack on Jerusalem. So it says, The king of Babylon slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah. Zedekiah was the, the ruling king at that time in Jerusalem. So the king of Babylon slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah at Riblah before his eyes. And the king of Babylon slaughtered all the nobles of Judah. He put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains to take him to Babylon. The Chaldeans burned the king's house and the house of the people and broke down the walls of Jerusalem. The Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried into exile to Babylon the rest of the people who were left in the city. Those who had deserted to him and the people who remained. And so we get this picture of the attack and, and the Babylonians killing all of the nobles. And even ripping out the eyes of the king. Then Lamentations gives us a picture of what is left. So three different verses, I'll have them popped up. So first off, we see the city. So Lamentations 2.8 says, The Lord determined to lay in ruins the wall of the daughter of Zion. He stretched out the measuring line. He did not restrain his hand from destroying it. He caused rampart and wall to lament. 
they languish together. So it's just destroyed, just crumbling. And then we see a picture of what it looked like. So when the attack started, all the Israelites tried to just run into the city and hide behind the walls. And they thought, we can just, we have these strong walls. We can just live it out in the city. Eventually the Babylonians will run out of energy and give up. Babylonian forces were large and they were strong and they lived out, they pushed past anything that the Israelites could have experienced or thought. And so then famine started to break out within the walls of Jerusalem. And so verse 12 says, they cry to their mothers, children, they cry to their mothers, where is bread and wine? As they faint like a wounded man in the streets of the city, as their life is poured out on their mother's bosom, children dying in their mother's arms. And then verse 21, we see the aftermath. In the midst of the streets lie the young and the old. My young men and young women have fallen by the sword. You have killed them in the day of your anger, slaughtering without pity. Walls ruined, mothers unable to feed their children, bodies laying dead in the street, men and women, old and young. It's horrific. And again, this is hard for us to fully feel the weight of what is being expressed here. Because many of us haven't experienced anything like this. But I tried to think of some sort of analogy that, that might even just scratch the surface for us of what this may be feeling like so we can understand this grief. And so I thought of the idea of a tornado. Okay, so just imagine with me for a minute. Think about your home. Think about the home that you currently live in. I, I've talked with many of you, and I know a lot of the situations where you guys are living in. And so I know many of you, some of you have, have built your own homes, and you've built exactly what you wanted, and you've poured blood, sweat, and tears into building exactly the home that you've always dreamed of. You know, and you're raising your children, in, or you already have raised your children in this home that you just love, and it's everything. Some of you are living in homes that have been given to you by your family. Like, you grew up in this home, and now you're raising your children in this home. And again, the memories of your childhood are flooding into your thoughts right now. Some of you are farmers, and your homes are attached to your livelihood. Like, this is, this is where you work, is at home and around your home. Now, some of us, we live in apartments. We rent apartments or rent houses or even just say, yeah, I own a home, but I don't care that much about it. It was a starter home and we're just looking to get out of it. So, yeah, the home doesn't mean that much to me, but it's still filled with memories and stuff that we have worked our entire lives for. Now, as you think about whatever home it is that you have, imagine that it is destroyed by a tornado. Like, you're not home, you're on vacation, and the tornado hits, and you come home. The feeling that you would feel as you walked up, drove up, and see this home that you've loved, or all the stuff and all the memories just gone, completely destroyed. Obviously, insurance can replace certain stuff, but there are just things that are irreplaceable. The feeling that you would feel in that situation is just a glimpse of the grief that this psalmist is feeling in verses 1 and 2. For the Israelites, it's so much more. They were the chosen people. God gave them this land. He had them build this temple, and he dwelled amongst them in that temple. This wasn't just a place they went to worship on, Saturday, on Sunday morning. It was everything to them. Emotionally, spiritually, their jobs were attached to it. Their homes were around it. 
and everything was destroyed. Now, to add another layer to this, a portion of this grief is also attached to the fact that it was their fault. The psalmist knew that. He knew that the warnings that God had given through the prophets. And so as he's seeing this destroyed city and destroyed temple for the first time in years, the feeling that this was our fault. We did this. Like if a tornado destroyed your home tomorrow, there's not a lot you can say, well, it was my fault because I built in Tornado Alley. Like, well, that's, so have millions of other people. Like this is, God hasn't warned you, don't build a house in Iowa. And if he has, listen. Like that's, God has warned these people and said, come back, come back, or I'm going to destroy you. I'm going to punish you. So seeing the destruction is a reminder that they were warned. In verse 3, we see the defiance. The Babylonians were requesting them to sing songs. They would force the Israelites to sing songs as a way to mock them. We've mentioned repeatedly as we've gone through this series that psalms were songs that the Israelites would sing in different situations. Praise, lament, joy, suffering, all different sorts of emotions are spelled out in the Psalms. And many of them are looking forward to a future hope of the Messiah. I instantly thought of our, our passage, our sermon from last, re- last week. Like Stephen came and, and preached on Psalm 97, right? And this was this messianic psalm, this praise psalm. The Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice. And it goes on, fire goes before him and burns up all his adversaries around him. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness and all the people see his glory. All worshipers of images are put to shame who make their boast in worthless idols. Psalm 97 is this exact, like, just praise of God's glory and his majesty. I can imagine that the Babylonians would force the Israelites to, to sing something similar to this. Maybe not that exact one, but something similar. And just be like, yeah, sing us your songs of praise to your God. And then mocking them. Where is your God now? Oh, you want to say he melts mountains with his words? Where is your God now? And just mock them. These songs were meant for honoring God, not just for entertainment. This is the grief and the defiance that we see in this passage. And it's what we need to start to try and grab a hold of so that we can understand for ourselves what exactly is going on. So we can start to understand why, as we get to the end of this passage, why this psalmist can write these horrific things. Understanding the grief. Next, we see the remembrance that the psalmist felt in verses 5 through 6. No matter how bad the situation got for the Israelites, no matter how bleak the country looked when they got back, they knew the importance of remembering God. Sometimes we have to lose something to really appreciate it. And here we see the exiles mourning the loss of everything that was important to them. And truly asking themselves, did we really appreciate this? Did we really appreciate what God gave us? Our land, our city, the temple, our homes, our children. Did we appreciate that? When we lose something, do we ask that same question? Did I appreciate what God had given me, what he had blessed me with? At least 
one man out of the exiles made a vow that he would always remember Jerusalem and that he would make it his highest priority and greatest joy in life. And we can read this and be like, okay, why is he so focused on a city? Like, that doesn't seem to be very godly. Well, it's not just the city. When he says Jerusalem, he is referring to Yahweh, to God, to everything that Jerusalem represented, the dwelling place of God, the ministry that it meant to the world around them, and the chosen people that they were, the history of the Israelites. That's what he means when he says, Jerusalem, I won't forget you. And so he makes this vow. Before he wrote about God's judgments on others, He judged himself. And he even asked God to punish him if he failed to keep this vow. As we we look back on our life and evaluate our experiences and our hurts and, and things that happened to us, it's important for us to learn lessons from them and to grow in godly character. We need to look at every situation and say, what has God been trying to teach me through this, good or bad? No matter how bad our current situation, we must remember what God has done in the past through the history of the world, through the history of the Bible, personally in our own lives, pressing into the hard times. God is teaching us something through this. Do not forget the struggles that you have gone through. They're the scars of your testimony. They're the story of God's grace and forgiveness and abundant blessings in your life. We must have remembrance as we walk through this. And lastly, in those last three verses, we see the psalmist's anger coming out. His hatred. It's a prayer for revenge. And he starts off and he talks about these Edomites. Well, for the past 20-some minutes, I've been talking about Babylonians, and all of a sudden we see the Edomites. So it's like, well, who are these who are these Edomites? Well, the Edomites were related to the Israelites. They were, both nations were descended from Abraham. And although Israel shared its southern border with this country, Edom, they, were, they had a bitter hatred towards each other. The Edomites did not come to help when the city of Jerusalem was invaded by Babylon. And in fact, they rejoiced when the city was destroyed. This would be like betrayal within the family. Like they're, they're distant relatives. And not only do they not come and help, but they're rejoicing at your destruction. So it's understandable why the psalmist is just a little salty towards the Edomites. Like he's not really impressed with their actions. That'd be like if you are going through the most intense suffering you've gone through, whatever it may be, job loss, loss of family members, whatever the suffering you've gone through, and all of a sudden you get on Facebook and you see your like second cousin twice removed is commenting on your page. Ha ha, you deserved it. Well, what is that? Why would you do that? That doesn't need to happen. That's just salt in the wound, right? And that's what these Edomites did. They're like, you deserved it and we're not going to help you. So, of course, the psalmist is upset with them as well, and he's asking God to punish them for it. And then we get to this phrase about the infants. And it's harsh. It's harsh because the psalmist is crying out for judgment. He's saying, treat the Babylonians the way they treated us. 
we have to stop and ask in that situation, is it ever right to wish vengeance on people? Like, is that okay for us to wish for vengeance? Is God okay with this prayer to murder babies? No, absolutely not. God does not sanction killing children, but he does grant us freedom to express our outrage at situations. Prayer between you and God is a safe place to release intense emotions. God doesn't expect us to suffer in silence. In prayer, God can take our hatred and our anger and he can start to heal it. God can handle our anger. And he wants us to be open and honest with him. Psalm 137 is a blunt expression of honest emotions with nothing held back. This psalmist is putting it all out there. If we can't be honest with God in the midst of prayer in the hardest seasons of our life... Who can we be honest with? And that's what this prayer is. That's what this psalm is. Our anger needs to be prayed, not suppressed. This psalm expresses accurately what the people were feeling. But there is never a divine approval for what is said. It's never like God's like, okay, yep, you're right. We should smash these. No, that's not what God is saying. He's just letting them pray it out. And he's letting those prayers come into our Bible so that we can see that the emotions need to come out of us somehow, some way. This, this prayer is in response to oppression, persecution. But when we look at this, we also need to look at it systematically through the rest of the Bible. Like, okay, we have this one verse here that's talking about vengeance But what else does the Bible say about vengeance? Well, Jesus has some pretty clear teaching on the topic of vengeance. Matthew 44 says, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That doesn't feel good. I've had conversations with my son about this very topic. Children seem to always want things to be fair, right? Like, they love the idea of vengeance. Children may not actually say that, like, oh, I just wish I could get some vengeance today, Dad. Like, that's, that's not what they say, but it is rooted in their thoughts and their actions. This idea of vengeance is what children love, right? Like, my little brother punches me, so it's fair for me to punch him back. If a friend breaks my toy, it's fair for me to unfriend him and possibly break his toy if I get the chance. If a kid in school picks on me and makes fun of me, it's fair for me to make fun of him back if we get the chance. That's what children think. But Jesus is saying no. When your brother punches you, when your friend breaks something, when that bully picks on you, pray for them. I know how incredibly difficult it is to pray for those who have hurt you. And not just, Father, uh, forgive them for hurting me. Father, convict them of their sins. Father, help them to become a Christian so they quit being so mean to me. Like, that's okay, right? You want to pray for people to become Christians and to know Jesus and to the Lord and, and read their Bibles and be convicted of sin. Those are all true. But what if we prayed for the flourishing and the well-being of those who have hurt us. Pray for God to bless them. That is what the rest of the passage in Matthew 5 says. It says, Jesus says, 
you know, it's not up to you. God, God is the one in control of all of this. God blesses the just and the unjust, the evil and the good. If we truly want to reflect Jesus to a broken and sinful world, praying for the well-being of those that have hurt us is the starting point. We also need to remember that there is a big difference between vengeance and justice. Justice brings the idea of being correctly punished for your mistakes or your bad behaviors. Sometimes we will say things like, well, I just, I hope they get what they deserve, right? Like they did something wrong and I just hope they get what they deserve. But what is justice? I thought of this topic this week a lot because I was preaching on it and researching it. And as I was watching the news reports, the El Chapo case comes up and the conviction comes up. And I thought about it instantly with this idea of justice. It's very easy for us to say that someone like him deserves life in prison, right? Like we can celebrate this. Like this guy has had people murdered. He's been responsible for billions of dollars of drugs coming into America. That's what he deserves. He deserves life in prison to never see the light of day again. He was a bad person and he deserves this. Justice has been done. But we need to understand that we are always looking through justice through a sinful lens. I also think about it with parenting, right? Like when my children mess up or or do something to offend me, when I ground them or when I punish them, I can say that I'm being just. But God is justice. He's perfect and holy. He is the only one who can give perfect justice. Even when we go through the courts and the government and try our best to be just, it doesn't compare. Lady Justice stands in the shadows of the cross. God does not invite our prayers for revenge. But our takeaway from this psalm is that praying for the destruction of evil is good and right. The question isn't when justice will ultimately arrive. God fights for justice. Justice will win. And any progress we make to get rid of injustice in this world, it only pales in the light of the justice that will arrive when Christ returns to this earth. That is perfect justice when it will come to fruition. What is actually just for God? Well, what's just for God is that everyone and every sin that we've ever committed, everyone that's ever hurt us, either they will pay for our wrong, their wrongs, either we will pay for our wrongs, or Jesus will. So how do we rightly apply this? Is it possible for us to ever pray, hope, wish for vengeance? Like when we're hurt and we're just angry with somebody or something, is it okay to pray for vengeance from them? The short answer is no. Not if we're praying against people specifically. Like if we are praying specifically for vengeance against people, God does not invite those kind of prayers. We need to be praying against the sin in people. Whenever someone hurts us, it is most likely the overflow of something that is hurting them. It may be something that we've done to them, or it may be something that somebody else has done to them that now they're overflowing into us. Again, with my children, whenever someone does something to them, I always remind them. 
that we don't know what's going on in their lives. We can see snapshots at school and at work, but we don't know what's going on in people's lives on a day-to-day basis. Many people around us are going through personal hell. From sick families to divorce to money problems to siblings and children being out of control to whatever it may be. People's lives are filled with hurt. And we need to realize that we live in a broken world who desperately needs Jesus. What about carrying out vengeance, right? Like, is that okay? Can we carry out vengeance? Like, I used to really like comic books. Like, I still really like comic book movies, but this is kind of my nerd coming out. Like, I used to have stacks of comic books when I was, like, in middle school. And some of my favorite comic books were, like, the vigilante-type comic books, like the Deadpool, Punisher, Ghost Rider, like these heroes or anti-heroes going out and finding people worse than them and, and bringing vengeance to the world, like vigilante, right? Like that's, that's good, right? Like that's okay. If we seek out people who are doing something bad and get, go vigilante on them, right? I'm sure the cops that we have in the room are like, no, please don't. Like, where is Joey going with all this? As much as we may want to get vengeance for something bad that has happened to us, or even something that's bad that's happened in the world today, we need to trust the system. Trust that the powers that be, the powers that God has placed over our city, over our country, over our world, that they will do what is right. And if they don't, like I said earlier, it is up to God and God alone to carry out vengeance for sin. Now, we always want to connect what we read to Jesus. So what about this passage? Where do we find Jesus in a passage like this? It's tough. But we must look for him in unlikely and even terrifying places like Psalm 137. We live in a world that is exhausted by war, injustice, anger, and anger that brings about indifference and violence. But our life of peace was earned when the violence of the Father's wrath was poured out upon his only son, Jesus. He waged war, taking away the light of his offspring so that we could live in peace and advocate for it. Evil will be defeated. It will be destroyed, and we are saved. Author Wendy Stringer, she said it so good. She found it for me where Jesus was in here. She said, deliverance is bathed in the blood of the Father's beloved Son. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rocks. The limitless God of heaven and earth takes on the broken mantle of human flesh in Jesus that we might be, that he might be dashed against the rocks of ruins so that his little ones never will be. Jesus went to the cross and he died for us so that we could have justice, that we could feel perfect justice someday. And Jesus urges us to pray for those who hurt us, who persecute us. Prayer is the battleground where we wage war with every idea, action, and belief that is in opposition to the will of God. Prayer is a rebellion against the evil of this world. 
we should be disturbed by sin. And our anger of sin should take us to our knees. Through prayer, God takes our anger and starts to transform it into compassion. With spiritual maturity, we begin to see the foul disease of sin and how it causes people to treat us and others cruelly. And we may begin to see that our oppressors, those that hurt us, that they are actually victims of the human condition of just being sinful, a sinful nature that we all have. We also shouldn't expect a godly behavior from people who reject God. While outrage motivates cries for divine judgment, only love can heal. In this fallen world, we encounter horrible wickedness. We cannot control the evil around us. But with God's help, we can keep from responding to it. Bitterness can be resolved in prayer. When we bring our hurts to God, we can even learn to forgive and internally be healed. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for this passage. I thank you for difficult passages. And I thank you that we as a family can wrestle through it, that we can talk about what it truly means. And God, I know that we live in a world surrounded by hurt and pain and injustice and suffering. And we can be angry at that. The Bible never tells us to not be angry. It says, in your anger, do not sin. Anger is an emotion that we all have, and we need to be angry at the sin of this world. But it needs to force us to pray and go to God with our hurts. So God, I thank you that you are a God that listens, and that we can bring anything to you. In your name I pray. Amen.